0: You are listening to National Security Law Today. Welcome to National Security Law Today, the podcast of the American Bar Association's Standing Committee on Law and National Security. I'm Nicole, a member of the committee staff, and I'm joined by my co-host, Elisa, a national security lawyer who is here in her individual capacity and not on behalf of any agency or company. All right, our special guests today
1: are Mika Oyeng, who has worked on Capitol Hill as chief of staff to Representative Anna Eshoo, bless you, and defense policy advisor to Senator Ted Kennedy, and who is now the vice president for the National Security Program at Third Way, a nonprofit think tank here in Washington D.C., and Jackie Kemper, did I say it right? Mm-hmm. I hope awesome, <laughs> uh who worked on nuclear security and nonproliferation before joining Third Way as a policy advisor for their clean energy program. So thanks for tuning in everyone. And Mika, Jackie, we're really, really grateful that you came in tonight.
2: Really happy to be here. Thanks for having
1: us. All right, we're here to talk about something that sort of skated past people, which was the House Oversight Committee staff report on the transfer of of U.S. nuclear technology not some other kind of technology, to Saudi Arabia. That, that sort of slipped through, largely undetected in July, uh, which was now a couple of months ago. Uh, Mika, Jackie, what was this very important report about? Yeah, so listeners may recall that... Um one of the concerns that people
3: had with Michael Flynn, the President Trump's first national security advisor, was that during inauguration, he was sending some text messages to some people about some business activities that he was involved in. And what turns out to have happened is that he was involved with this nuclear energy company, IP3, and he was trying to get uh, IP3's technology into a deal with the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, who had been for quite some time interested in developing nuclear energy. Um, From a national security perspective, this is a really big deal because having an active nuclear energy program is often a thing that countries that are interested in acquiring nuclear weapons do so that they have the technology and the resources necessary to divert things out of that energy program into a weapons program.
1: Wow. Okay. And this has not been the best week um, for security in that region. We'll get to that in a minute. Nicole?
0: So there's an expression about the Washington revolving door. And this report certainly chronicles the influence that former government leaders, as we mentioned, uh, former national security Advisor Flynn, have over the White House and foreign governments who need the defense power of the U.S. So who else were some of the major players in this report? Yeah, so what
3: we see in this report is a lot of interaction between people at this particular company, IC3, and Trump administration officials trying to broker this deal. Now, to be clear, the United States has tried to work with other countries in the Middle East to set up frameworks on nuclear energy, and Jackie can talk more about this, um, including in places like the United Arab Emirates, where we've negotiated a very strict sh- uh, technology sharing agreement known as a 123 agreement. We've negotiated these with countries all over the place. So 123 agreements by themselves are not necessarily problematic, but what you see in this particular um, report is a complex interplay of former national security officials, current Trump administration officials, and uh, officials in Saudi Arabia, all working together to leverage influence in this administration to move this Mm
2: -hmm. energy
3: agreement forward.
2: Right. And um, getting to your original question, um, one of the folks that's mentioned repeatedly in this uh, this oversight report is a Thomas Barrick. I don't know if I'm pronouncing his name correctly. Barack. Barack. (laughs) Um, But, you know, this is someone who had extremely close ties to President Trump um, and the administration um, and was a longtime personal friend um, and campaign donor and inaugural chairman. Um, And so this is is really, you know, this character is sort of uh, the common thread that you kind of see woven throughout most of the different um, highlights of this report. Um, and what it really ends up highlighting is the administration's willingness to let private parties with close ties to the president have outsized influence over US policy towards Saudi Arabia, um, particularly, as uh, Mika mentioned, IP3 International. Um, and this is a private company that um, assembled a consortium of US companies seeking to build nuclear power plants in Saudi Arabia. Um, and if you look at their board, it's mostly comprised of generals and admirals who, to be quite frank, have little or no experience with nuclear power, right? They don't,
1: and I, I did find it interesting that they were generals, right. period. Because I, you know, we saw General Flynn find himself in in trouble, um, but you know, some of these people obviously transcend the current administration. They go back years, General Alexander. Um, but but I did find that interesting that these people who are generally sort of patriots suddenly find themselves embroiled in the middle of this thing that arguably is not necessarily in the interests of the United States. Fascinating.
3: Yeah, and I think that we've seen a trend of technology companies recruiting generals to their boards to build gravitas, generals and national security officials. Um, You see this in the Theranos case, for example. Um, And these generals and admirals, while very expert in very specific things in national security and broader geopolitical contexts and in running large organizations, may not have the expertise necessary um, on a corporate board to keep people out of trouble or to, rec- to be sophisticated actors um, in, this, in this context. And I think that, the, but there is a real trend for people to try and get that kind of um, resume onto their board.
1: Yeah, that was uh, very telling. And to be clear, what Mika is referring to in this instance is the company Theranos that had a pinprick test they said could do all sorts of things and that they had engaged in this rigorous testing of, of the um, technology that they offered that was going to be dirt cheap, and of course none of that had happened, and the entire thing collapsed, and it appears that none of these people sitting on the board that she's referring to um, seemed to have the wherewithal to really scrutinize what was happening internally, which was essentially nothing. Mm-hmm, right. Um, all right, Jackie, MBS, um, and when we're talking about Mohammed bin Salman, who is the um What exactly is he? He's the crown prince. And the heir apparent. Mm -hmm. The heir apparent, certainly, um, of the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. Um, And he keeps saying over and over again publicly that he's preparing the kingdom for a time when there's no more oil. Um, You know, anybody who knows the history going back to sort of the British... And the way that part of the world was divided up would say, hmm, you exist really as you are today because of oil. Mm -hmm. Um, Is that a credible claim on his part, or is it just a justification that seems to appeal to our sort of Western values and some sort of ruse to acquire acquire, uh, nuclear technology?
2: So I think, you know, just to put a few facts on the table to sort of really hone in on um, how much of their actual domestic oil they're consuming is important first. So currently, Saudi Arabia consumes over one quarter of its oil production. And while energy demand is projected to increase substantially, oil production is actually not slated to increase. And so from what I'm hearing, mostly it's really about we want to actually keep our oil for exports and not consumption. Um,
3: There is a secondary reason, though, why Saudi Arabia would be interested in acquiring nuclear energy. And we've seen this in countries like Iran and North Korea, which is the countries that develop nuclear power plants then divert waste products from those nuclear power plants into covert weapon systems. Now, Saudi Arabia is seeing its main rival in the region, Iran, previously tried to develop a weapon system, freeze for a while under the Obama administration, and then begin enrichment again in the Trump administration. So in looking at that geopolitical rival, they also have an interest in developing an energy program that could be diverted into a weapons program, which, given that the 9 11
1: hijackers
3: came mostly from Saudi Arabia, should be of tremendous national security concern to every American.
1: Fair point. And, uh, you know, it also, as we are speaking today, because we're recording this on the 24th of September, um, it's been now about a week and a half since allegedly Houthi rebels um, bombed one of Saudi Arabia's major oil. What was it? It wasn't a refinery. They don't refine there, do they? They just ship out crude. But mm-hmm. it caused, obviously, a massive conflagration. They haven't gotten back to production levels, and, and, and their claims otherwise don't, at this point at least, mm-hmm. um, seem credible. Um, just gives you some idea that if this kind of thing were to happen, we could trigger, I don't know, could we trigger a regional conflict um, or something even broader? Yeah, look,
3: for all that the United, that some people in the United States talk about trying to stop Iran from developing nuclear weapons through military strikes, imagine if you had two countries in the region mm-hmm. trying to develop nuclear weapons who people believe are likely to engage in military strikes against each other to disrupt each other's activities. Potentially, that is a That's a recipe for a huge regional conflict, and we have an ally sitting in the middle of that region.
2: Yeah, and I think, too, you know, one of the things that keeps coming up in in the conversations about this um, over the past several months is the argument, the main argument that IP3 was actually making was, you know, well, look, if the U.S. doesn't sell this technology to to Saudi Arabia, then it's going to be Russia or it's going to be China.
1: The president literally said that. I remember that press conference. I thought... Right. Okay, maybe that's true, but you said it.
2: (laughs) Right, and so I think one thing that tends to get lost in these conversations is actually the most likely uh, country to win a bit in Saudi Arabia is actually South Korea. Um, Why is that? So they have recently are in the process of completing a a successful build of the Baraka nuclear power plant in the UAE. Um, They have built, they are definitely the lead in, completing large nuclear power mega projects on time and on budget out of anybody else in the entire world at this point. So if you're actually going to purchase um, or enter into an agreement with a country that you know can complete this project on time and on budget, that's going to be your number one place to go. The one caveat I'll say for that is that actually much of the technology that's used in the design that they would be selling and building for Saudi Arabia involves U.S. technology. So it's likely that there would still need to be um, some type of agreement, whether it's a Part 810 or 123 agreement in place, if it was actually a Korea build as well.
1: And when we refer to a 123 agreement, that's because obviously nuclear materials, fissile materials of any kind, are highly regulated. Under our laws, and their transfer requires certain legal processes before it can occur. Right. Um, does one of you want to talk briefly about that, just to orient our listeners clearly? Not yeah. all of them will be familiar with
3: that. So let me just talk about the broader framework on nuclear energy and weapons, and then Jackie yeah. can talk about the specifics of a one-two-three agreement. Right. So globally, going back to the Eisenhower administration and Adams for peace, the idea was that the U.S., who had developed nuclear weapons initially wanted to kind of deal with the rest of the world, that you had a choice. Um, you could have nuclear energy or you could have weapons, but you shouldn't have both, right? And so we had sort of set up this non-proliferation treaty that most countries around the world signed on to, saying that they would commit to peaceful uses of nuclear energy. And there were some additional safeguards agreements that uh, people signed to say, like, here's the kinds of inspections that we will allow to make sh- so that you can check up and make sure that we're not actually going to weaponize. A small number of countries initially were accepted from that as nuclear weapon states, but everybody else was only supposed to be using peaceful nuclear energy. Over the life of that treaty, what we've seen is a number of countries develop weapons on the side of that. And the United States really crossed a Rubicon when it signed a one-two-three agreement with India in the Bush administration. India had developed nuclear weapons. Outside of the NPT structure, and the US went ahead with nuclear energy sharing anyway. There were a lot of concerns about that, but Jackie can talk about the kinds of safeguards that we, we talk about inside of the
0: 123 agreement.
2: Yeah, so one thing that we mentioned earlier in the conversation was this gold standard um, 123 agreement that we saw with UAE. Um, and so that was really the first, that was back in 2009, that was the first time you've seen the gold standard. And what that means is two things. One, that UAE um, explicitly came out and committed to not um, uh, not completing enrichment or um, reprocessing as, at all as part of their system, which is some of the stuff that Mika talked about that can actually take you from a nuclear power program to potentially weapons. Um, and the other piece of that, she mentioned safeguards, is um, that they agreed to take on the additional protocol, which is basically an additional layer that you can take on for... Um, uh, verification things from the IAEA, the International Atomic Energy Agency, on top of your comprehensive safeguards agreements. So it's just another layer of of sort of um, security and compliance. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so so Section one two three requires that the Department of State submits a nuclear proliferation assessment statement explaining how the nuclear cooperation agreement meets our non proliferation conditions. Congress then has a total of ninety days in continuous session to consider the agreement if they don't it just becomes law so if they don't touch it it's so this is sort of the process for a 123 agreement um, so as i said the the gold standard was sort of coined uh, back in 2009 um, with the UAE agreement now there's a whole other sort of export um, control agreement called part eight. it's a part 810 process um, so Saudi Arabia does not have a 123 agreement in place with the United States right now But without that agreement, you can actually do limited forms of cooperation related to the development of production of special nuclear material um, through Part 810 authorization. So Part 810 authorizations do not allow any technology transfer. Um, So it's more um, basically you can transfer knowledge. You can have conversations leading up to Saudi Arabia actually deciding who they're going to go with. That's sort of what the Part 810 process is. 123 is actually transferring physical objects, you know, the actual materials. Part 810 is really more focused on um, basically being in compliance with having conversations leading up to potentially a sale.
1: So, and what I hear loud and clear um, is that Congress has the sort of right, statutory right, to be involved in this process at some point and weigh in. This sounds like, correct me if I'm wrong, the, the thrust of this entire report is that Congress was obviously not engaged. These were backdoor meetings at the White House, um, that the process was largely being skipped. Um, there wasn't even any pretense of gold standard style commitments, let alone a gold standard mm-hmm. commitment, and um, that they were using sort of their personal relationships. Now, I also notice a theme here, which I have joked before about one of our, with Stuart baker about which is i think i've said to Stuart, you know the problem with any political campaign is i think afterwards you probably want to take a bath a lot of these people seem to have come from a campaign into some relationship which is you know not uncommon and not everybody involved in a campaign has problems maybe not even most um but thematically that seems like what happened here is you, you gave some sort of unequivocal support and boom you're in the door and now maybe these things are Correct me
3: if I'm wrong. Not in our best interest? Yeah, so I think one of the challenges here is, right, this happens in a, in a political campaign where we've got a lot of donors and people who are close to the president and people who are advising candidates about what the priorities are of the United States. Now, there might be legitimate reasons why you would want Saudi Arabia and other countries to adopt nuclear energy because it is a carbon-neutral source mm-hmm. of energy That it, it is part of the ways that we can try and reduce our carbon footprint globally. There are reasons why you could say, this is a priority for us. We're trying Mm -hmm. to negotiate gold standard one, two, three Mm -hmm. agreements with as many countries as we can. And and that's the thing that we're going to do. And you could have people around a candidate saying, this is important. And a candidate, when becoming president, take that on as an issue. But then, in a normal administration, if that becomes a presidential priority, what you would see is, people from the Department of State and the Department of Energy yep. at the worker bee level engaging on this issue and making it a diplomatic priority, and you would have experts involved who have negotiated this agreement before, people perhaps who are on the India 123 negotiating yep. team. It would be done at a very different level than at right campaign person to KT McFarland at the White House. We so, just- So just to follow up on that... Like, one of the things that's a real challenge here is that what you see is a subversion of the normal process, which looks like influence of Trump administrations who are coming in, who had a pre-existing financial interest, trying to subvert the regular process that would have guaranteed the kinds of safeguards and considerations that you would have wanted. You would have wanted people from the intelligence community at the table to talk about what are the verification things that we need to see in a 1-2-3 agreement to make sure that another country in the Middle East isn't weaponizing. You would want people who are part of the energy, you know, Department of Energy together in, in that conversation on like what have we done before and what is reasonable here given Saudi Arabia's capability and what they're interested in. You would have a formal negotiating team. Mm-hmm. You would not have the visit to Saudi Arabia that you saw with the president and then the kinds of language you saw of the IP3 uh, people, you know, bragging about that.
1: And, and to your point, they I think the report said at some point that the individuals involved in these lobbying efforts stood to get a million bucks
2: apiece yes. per, per per reactor. reactor.
1: So
3: that's huh.
2: quite an incentive, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And, you know, I think that, um, you know, one of the things that's the drumbeat throughout this entire report is just the absolute explicit pressure that I 3 was putting on the administration to forgo the gold standard and, and just time and time again refer to it as an obstacle that just needs to be
0: overcome. Wow. And so what is Congress's authority to conduct oversight? And based on the bipartisan nature of this report, there's and what we've just been talking about, there is some authority there.
3: Yeah, look, I think that the development of nuclear weapons by countries where it could fall into the hands of extremists is a bipartisan shared concern. And um, the effect on the region and our regional allies is a bipartisan shared concern. What you see in this report and its thoroughness is Congress exercising its tremendous oversight powers to be able to gather information, to put things on the table. The real question, though, comes in... What are the consequences? Um, This is not a report that seems to have the same kind of personal engagement by the president, or at least it doesn't seem so in what we've seen so far. Um, But there are lower-level officials, and I think there are real questions about what can an oversight committee do um, in terms of imposing consequences on the actors here. But the challenge with people who are trying to trade on influence is they're trying to do it in secret. And so raising the scrutiny on these things is, mm-hmm. is actually part of Congress's
0: oversight power as well. Yeah.
2: I mean, and that's one thing that, it, you know, that it really jumps right in and gets at here is that, you know, the White House has refused to produce any documents in this investigation thus far. And so it may be necessary for the community to seek compulsory process to p- obtain that information. And to Mika's point, you know, it's, um, just, you know, you know, holding their feet to the fire and making it, you know, crystal clear that we are paying attention. And as you brought up in the beginning of this conversation, this definitely sort of like fell under the radar. But the fact that there's actually, you know, there is oversight taking place and there is a continuous investigation and that there will be a process to obtain information that's been withheld is very important.
1: Well, I have to say that, you know, just Yes, I'm an inside-the-beltway, love watching everything that goes on here, but when the, the Houthi, if it was Houthi, bombing occurred, sort of the gravity and the importance of this report, um, I think, should have been you know dramatically resuscitated in that moment. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I certainly hope that other people will pick it up and pay attention to it, because it's important, and it's bipartisan, and it's fact-laden, and it's drafted by staff which in my experience are often, on both sides, very high-functioning people, you know, who do a lot of really good hard work, work late into the night, Mm -hmm. a great sacrifice, and frankly, (laughs) might surprise the people um, outside the Beltway, are not paid very much for this amazing work. Mm -hmm.
3: Um, Yeah, look, as a former staffer, I think that the work that staff does, like, people often discount them, and it's really unfair. Most of these people could be in private law firms and often go to private law firms after this, and... They do their jobs at a fraction of the pay, having been that person, and right, you know, sort of trying to survive on eating leftover reception food. Um, <laughs> it's a rough. Sometimes trip. it's good, Salty. Sometimes it's mm-hmm. good, That's right? Good. Like, but how many cheese cubes can you eat? Mm. Um, it's <laughs> it's a tough job. Um, but the tragedy of this administration is we're recording this on the day when Nancy Pelosi has announced the House is proceeding with an impeachment inquiry. There are so many instances yeah. like this mm-hmm. that, unfortunately this this issue with Saudi Arabia and the potential that we could be facing yet another country trying to acquire nuclear weapons is an issue that just Delta is nuclear. one of many yeah. Yeah. that that people are concerned mm-hmm. on in terms of mm-hmm. um, you know the kinds of influence that is being brought to bear in this administration. Well, I mean, and the foreign I, policy. I, in fairness, is,
1: the issue of the swamp. Mm-hmm. Statement. There was a lot of stuff about the swamp, and I think that reference um, was just sort of appealing to a lot of people. They didn't quite understand that when you refer to the swamp, you're talking about undue influence. Um, and so, an, any person who gets in the White House really should completely avoid this if it's possible. But I think it's very hard when those relationships develop. It's sometimes I think it's probably hard to not recognize to recognize what's happening until you're at a point in a meeting. But you have to have the fortitude to cut it off and say. Thank Mm -hmm. you very much. Uh, We're patriotic. We're here to serve the American people. Let's Mm -hmm. not go there. Right. I mean, I do think that, look, people have a right
3: to petition their government. It's in the Constitution. But government is supposed to be taking a look at all those petitions and requests and things and deciding what's actually in the best interest of the United States. So I don't find it – I don't worry so much when people – have meetings and tell people in the government things. What worries me is if the government is taking action in ways that don't take into consideration our security concerns, they are trying to short circuit the process, that the Department of Energy should have an ongoing conversation with energy companies in this United States. right? Yes, they should have a conversation. They should be talking about what kinds of developments are happening Mm -hmm. and what the international marketplace looks like. But they should also be judging that against what is in the security interests of the United States. Mm -hmm. And I
2: mean, specifically with IP3, you know, IP3 does not represent the U.S. nuclear industry. And you can see that in this report. There are multiple quotes from emails from folks that are actual leaders and knowledgeable in the U.S. nuclear industry that call out IP3 for what it is. Um, and, and 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 are warning against being involved with them, and and are trying to avoid being linked to IP3. So so these are legitimate
1: people. They're running absolutely. legitimate businesses, and they're right. sounding the alarm. Absolutely. Whoa, these people are running around trying to sell something. They're right. really not experts.
2: Right. And I mean, yeah. you know, one of the things that IP3 touts as part of the reason that they're they're involved in this in the first place is trying to save the U.S. nuclear industry. And you know, I've heard from multiple folks in the industry that you know hitching a wagon to IP3. And the IP3 boondoggle, as it's referred to in this report, is actually to the detriment of the U.S. nuclear industry. Um, and so it was actually, for me, um, it was really interesting and sort of refreshing to see how much pushback there was from industry against IP3 as being their representative in this in this process. Wow.
1: Um, but but this gets to another one. Let, pivoting back for just a second to Saudi Arabia in particular, Um I want to go back for a minute to this idea. You said it's, it's a quarter of the, the oil production there yep. is for self-consumption mm-hmm. within the within the kingdom. Mm-hmm. But um, back in the 1970s, the kingdom of Saudi Arabia agreed to transact all sales of oil in yep. U.S. dollars. Now, um, we just completed a podcast with Brian Egan, friend of the cast, awesome guy, who talked a lot about um, what that has meant to us over the years, what that's meant to the dollar. Mm-hmm. And we know that at Jackson Hole back in, I don't know if it was July or August, um, that, you know, Mark Carney and, and um, the chairman of the Fed were talking about everybody untethering from the dollar. I feel like we're setting up a situation, maybe I'm right, maybe I'm wrong, where we're going to become increasingly dependent on this oil sale that sought for Saudi Arabia to hold the dollar up internationally. Um, what are your thoughts on that? And can you quantify sort of the U.S. dependence on oil um, and other ways in which we've tethered ourselves to Saudi Arabia, either
2: one of you. Um. I caveat my entire statement on the fact that this is not my wheelhouse. Um, but but I will say this. I will say that I know that over the past few decades, we've become less dependent on Saudi Arabia for oil, period. Um, and, you know, when we talk about the petrodollar, um, I think it's it's difficult for me to find a link between... Our relationship, the U.S.'s dependence on the petrodollar and the influence we have there, and potential U.S. exports in nuclear energy. Mika, I mean, feel free to jump in. Yeah, look, I
3: I think there are big questions about the extent to which the dollar is the reserve currency on which the world relies. And we have seen a tremendous weakening in that fairly recently, right? We saw... The renminbi got named as a reserve currency. We saw as a result of the U.S. withdrawal from the Iran deal, the European countries talking about was there a way that they could transact business with Iran without touching the U.S. banking system? Could they set up a special situation for that? I think it is one of those hidden things about American power that people don't really understand that so much global economic activity – transits the American banking system and the financial system in ways that give us a lot of insight and power in America. And to the extent that that begins to go away, it really is problematic for America in ways that will be very hard to see in the short run, but will be really hard for people to deal with in the long run. Really
1: consequential. Like, in ways that we can hardly predict as we sit here. That's right. Massive. Right. Mm-hmm. right. And Agreed. I'm sure there
3: are economists who could, who could give you a much more yeah. detailed... Explanation of what's going to happen globally if as that decoupling happens, but there is tremendous power in the United States being the center of the world financial markets and the Mm -hmm. global economic activity.
1: There is.
0: So, is there anything else that Congress can do in its oversight capacity to mitigate the risks? to national security that were drawn out in this report, especially with the involvement of peripheral figures and former officials uh, striking these sorts of deals. Yeah, I think one of the
3: things that happens here is that Congress has often consulted and approves one, two, three agreements that happened with India. And so Congress can make clear that they will not be comfortable with an agreement that does not meet that gold standard, especially given the proliferation risk in Saudi Arabia and, frankly, the aggressiveness of the what's likely to be the next generation of leadership in Saudi Arabia, that given how erratic and unpredictable that leader is, that creating a system that would allow that person to obtain nuclear weapons, he's mm-hmm. very young, over his lifetime, is actually very dangerous for the United States. And I think on a bipartisan basis, Congress should be very clear that any attempt to expand nuclear energy in Saudi Arabia should only come with the highest level of safeguard.
2: Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. Um, You know, getting back to sort of this uh, claim that you hear, we talked about it earlier, um there's two really there's the one we talked about with if we don't do it then Russia or China is going to do it we right. talked about that and the other side of it is that you know the US nuclear industry needs this you know we need this deal and to be quite frank um you know it's it is we will not get the benefits mm-hmm. that make it worth weakening our standards on on nonproliferation for this agreement it's just not it's not in our best interest it's not in the US nuclear industry's best interest and it's not in just the United States' national security best interest.
1: Well, to your point, too, what you're saying earlier is that the way this deal was being sort of hatched, there would have been no sort of exchange, no sort of agreement that would have allowed for any sort of compliance. It was just sort of a, here, have it, enjoy um and then you just hope for the best. Uh, nothing. No well, there would have been, movement.
2: I mean, there absolutely would have been a 1-2-3 process put in place at some point. It's just the most troubling thing about this is all of the, as Mika explained, um, there has been a Part 8-10 process that has taken place. Um, Why do you explain briefly again sure. what 8-10 is? So there was some, there, this came out in the news um, earlier this year or last year. Um, but essentially, there were concerns that, um, that I think there were six nuclear companies that had Part 810 part eight, authorizations but had requested for them to be, remain anonymous, um, which this actually does happen quite often um, just because you happen to have, um, you know, some confidential business information that you don't want to have public to folks that you might be competing with in a bidding process and things sure. like that. Um, but essentially, as I was explaining before, this part, this part 810 that um, already exists for this uh, bidding process with Saudi Arabia and U.S. companies is more focused on the transfer of um, information and data and basically giving um, permission for there to be conversations between U.S. nuclear energy companies and, um, and Saudi Arabia to get the ball rolling on a potential deal. Mm-hmm. But in order for there to be any actual transfer of um, technology and materials, you still have to absolutely go through a 1-2-3 process. Um, the biggest concern with this report and what it has revealed is the the level and amount of access that this company, IP3, was able to have um, really pretty much, it seems, at the complete exclusion of any, any other members of industry that have actually been around and had lots of years of experience and could speak really well to this topic. So that seems to be one of the most concerning factors. Wow. Okay. Well, another happy
1: day. <laughs> um. All right, Mika, Jackie, thanks so much for coming in to talk about this report. Uh, I'm really glad, and I'm glad it was both of you. Um, And thanks for listening to the podcast National Security Law Today from the American Bar Association Standing
0: Committee on Law and National Security. You can find links to the black letter law and articles on today's topic at americanbar.org slash natsecurity and in the notes to this podcast, including a link to that House Oversight Committee report that we have been referencing throughout and a lawfare article called Why Flynn's Nuclear Advocacy Was So Dangerous. Uh, you can also find information on our site about our upcoming annual conference in November, which is a can't-miss event for national security lawyers. You can also drop us a note at nationalsecurity at americanbar.org. Follow us on Twitter at ABA NatSec. We welcome your feedback. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back next week.